John chapter 3, and Connie's going to read for us the first 15 verses. Thank you, Connie. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can no one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said this to you. You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be true? Jesus answered, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Verily, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the, desert, in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Illustrations come from the most unexpected of places. There's a little person in our home who enjoys watching something called Octonauts. It's on the screen. It's an underwater world with uh, characters. There's people who shouldn't be watching this have just smiled in my direction. They know exactly what I'm talking about. There's underwater world and uh, there's characters like uh, Captain Barnacle and Quasi and Peso. And they go on adventures and and explore unseen places and meet uh, unfamiliar um, objects and animals and creatures. Dorian is an immortal jellyfish that I was taught by my five-year-old exists in the deep seas around the world. Dorian is a remarkable example of God's creation, I believe. The immortal jellyfish that you can see on the next screen as well, in higher definition, is is a beautiful creation. When they're afraid, the immortal jellyfish, they do something that they alone can do. As an adult, fully grown jellyfish, when they get afraid, they can shrink And they become, they shred their adult existence and they become uh, reborn. I wonder where I'm going. They become uh, new creations, as it were. They become infants. They become baby-like again. And they can keep on doing this process whenever they're scared as a protective mechanism as long as they don't get eaten. If they get eaten, all bets are off. There's someone who's now laughing, their face off on the back row, who will not be mentioned, Chris. The... uh, We have here in John chapter 3, as we journey through John's gospel, the chapter, the passage in the whole of the Bible that describes what it means to be born again, 
what it means to be newly given life to. It's a little domestic drama between two people, two characters, Jesus and a man called Nicodemus, who we meet in verse 1. The first three sentences, we we get to know the characters a little bit. And in verse 4 and again in verse 9, two questions come from the lips of Nicodemus. And then twice with two pictures from the lips of Jesus, there's a picture of the wind that gives life and is unpredictable, but you can hear it. And also you have the picture of a brass serpent that's drawn right from the depths of the Old Testament in a book called Numbers. And in this passage, in this little domestic drama, you have this key biblical concept of what it means to be a Christian. Why do you need to be born again? What does it mean? How does it happen? Why, what, and how does it mean to be someone who is a born-again Christian? Because there's no other type of Christian, all Christians, that God encounters, that God gives new life to. That means they've been born again. It's not born again and not born again. Every Christian has been born again and given new life by Jesus. So why do you need to be born again? That's the first point. Why must you be born again? Look, three times it says here, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, it says with a repetitive nature that gives emphasis from the lips of Jesus You must be born again. Now, why is he so emphatic? Well, who's the character who he's talking to? Verse 1, we're introduced to Nicodemus. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. Right away, we know several things about him. Number one, that means he's old. You could not be a member of the uh, Jewish ruling council unless you were an aged person. Someone that's seen a lot of life, someone who's mature, someone with a fine head of hair that would be grey and with a cracking looking beard that would be essential, I'm sure. That's the first thing. Secondly, he would have to be a man, of course. Thirdly, he was rich. He was rich. We don't get that from this passage, but we get it from John chapter 19, verse 38 and following, which is the account when Jesus has died for the sins of the world on the cross. And then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus ask permission for the body of Jesus. And then a huge amount of spices have been bought and used to embalm and protect the body of Jesus. And then out of the generosity of both men's financial backing, which was considerable, they've got a tomb that is used for Jesus to be buried in. So that means uh, he's a man, he, means he's, he knows his Bible, it means that uh, he's a wealthy gentleman as well. Verse 10, how well does he know his Bible? It says, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. You should know better, it's a rebuke. The word used there is a particular word that says you're a scholar. We would say he's got a PhD in Bible. He knows his Bible from back to front. He knew the original language, he could read Hebrew. He would know Aramaic. He would know the evidence for the Bible. You're a scholar. You've got a PhD in Bible. That's what we know about this character called Nicodemus. Well, if that's what he knows, if that's his background, why did he go to Jesus? Yeah, If you know the Bible, you sound like a religious person. You're a wealthy person. You're a respectable person. You've got a fair bit of a cultural cachet, you could say. So why did he go? Verse 2. Rabbi, notice it does not say this. Rabbi, I know you're a teacher. It doesn't say that. It says, verse 2, Rabbi, we know. What's interesting here, I haven't seen this before, 
read this many times, but here we have a representative for a group of people going to Jesus, verse 2 again, at night, that's well known, in the darkness. And so there's a cloak of, of hiddenness about his decision. But he's going to Jesus to do some religious politicking. He's going to Jesus to say, I represent a group of people with a considerable vested interest. We are members of the Sanhedrin. We know how things work around here. Would you like to come and be part of us? Would you like to come under our authority? Because this is the way things work around here. We are the establishment. You're a man to be reckoned with. We've heard things about you. But I wonder if you'd like to get involved with us. We think we could help you. Could you help us? I think that's the vibe behind verse 2. Jesus cuts across him and says, verse 3, you must be born again. You must be born again. You, you must be born again, Nicodemus. He's a person who's come to Jesus. He's not seeking. That's the lady from, verse, uh, from chapter 4. He's not uh, broken, a modern synonym for sin. He's not someone who's needy. He's not someone uh, who's a drug addict or lowly. He's not the pers- person who's kind of bottomed out in their life. He's a person who's at the top of his life. He's the person who's wise and wealthy. He's the person who has it all together. Uh, but he comes to Jesus and says, we wonder if you'd like to join in our party. And Jesus says, you, 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 the one who has it all together You need to be born again. And it's so important in sentence 3, 5, and 7. He says, unless, 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 you must. There is a massive weight of seriousness and urgency behind the lips of Jesus. So friends, listen to the weight that Jesus gives this. It's of central importance. Anyone who tries to sell you a Christianity that it does not have as its very centerpiece, at its core, The critical nature, the crucial part of the Christian message is you must be born again. It says that in chapter 1, verse 12 and into verse 13. It says this. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You must be born again. Verse 7, Nicodemus, with all your Old Testament knowledge, all the books on the wall, all the scrolls that you can refer to, with your app on your phone in the first century kind of parlance, you shouldn't be surprised at this. You need to rethink all of your understanding of faith and spirituality. You might know the Old Testament, but you don't understand it. You don't understand the one to whom it points and to the one to whom it prophesies will come. You don't know the king who's standing before you. You must be born again. It's crucial. It's critical. It's central. That's the why. But what? What does it mean? What does it mean to be born again? If it's so important, we've got to spend some time thinking about it. Now, this answer might surprise you. Look at verse 6, this word birth that comes up a couple of times. It's the word really that means seed. It's a Latin word, radix, radical. It means a root. So it's not talking about something on the outside, hence speaking to the children about fruit on trees and staple guns. It's not reformation on the outside. It's not exterior change. It's something radical, something that happens in your heart. And so it's a birth image. It's a, it's a seed understanding. It's something that happens in your heart and in your head before exterior change is seen. 
You must be born again. What does Nicodemus hear? Jesus is saying, no matter how much cultural cachet you've accrued, all the good things you've done, all the good practices that you sought to live by mean absolutely nothing when it comes to you entering the kingdom of heaven. You need to be born again. All the robes you wear, all the prayers you've prayed, all the people you've helped, it means nothing. All of your accomplishments add up to zero when it comes before the presence of God. Now, that's really scary. If you want to have a relationship with God through Jesus, you need to be made a new person. It's not something you can do. It's given birth from above, from heaven, through Jesus Christ. That new affections are given by the Holy Spirit who takes the word of God and implants it into the human heart. You've got to be a completely new person. Christianity is not an additional thing to what you've done. I've used the phrase before, it's not religious insurance for a rainy day. In case God is there, I better go to church. It's a new heart. Why does Jesus kind of cut him off halfway through his flow? I think he says 20 words and then Jesus just jumps in verse 2. Nicodemus comes and says, we know you are a teacher. And, And Jesus cuts him off with a pass and says, Nicodemus, I know where you're heading. I know what you're thinking. Because look, you can go to every other world religion. Here's a picture of the main ones on the screen. And every founder says this. Here's my teaching. You need to understand it and you need to follow it. Here's what you need to do. Here's the footsteps in which you need to tread. Here's the places you need to go. Here's the amount you need to give so that you can improve yourself and be reformed. Jesus says, Nicodemus, that's not the way to go, so I'm just going to cut you off. You must be born again. That's your greatest need, Nicodemus. You can't be reformed. You need to be transformed from the inside out. Well, okay, here's my question. Verse 4. Well, how can a man be born when he's old? How is that possible, Jesus? Nicodemus is still thinking physically when Jesus is speaking spiritually. Jesus' understanding is, of Nicodemus' need is so accurate. He's saying, you need supernatural life in your heart. So verses 5 to 8 is a picture of the supernatural life, but from the natural world. It speaks about wind. It's moving the trees. It's never wind when you want it. The, but that's the reality. You can hear it. You can hear and see its influences. But you can never predict it. You can never know when it's going to start or stop. So look at verses 5 to 8. No one can enter the kingdom of God. How definitive Jesus is. Unless he's born of water and the Spirit. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In just a few sentences, with a few key words, Jesus is making all these connections back to a book called Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, that Nicodemus would be familiar with. He's got a PhD in Bible, remember? God spoke to Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel chapter 36, it's a great prophecy saying, I'm going to give you, God says to his people, there's going to be a new way of operating. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to wash you clean. It's picture language. I'm going to wash you clean with the water of my spirit. 
I'm going to give you a desire and an appetite for holiness and for holy living. That's in Ezekiel chapter 36. And if that's not amazing enough, in Ezekiel chapter 37, there's a unique chapter that speaks in a very unique way that young people love to see. If you just YouTube it, there's some really helpful videos and there's always some ones that are not as helpful. But it speaks about the valley of dry bones. If only someone were to create a song, dem bones, dem bones, and all the rest of it. But you've got this amazing picture in Ezekiel chapter 37 that depicts the spiritual state of God's people, Israel. They are dead. They are like a valley of dry bones. There's carcass upon carcass. There's a skull here and a femur bone and a tibular bone there. All bones. There's a jaw bone that's separate from a head bone. And yet God says, by my spirit, just like I did in the first chapter of the Bible, I will bring about new creation. By my spirit, I will speak my life-giving voice and word that enables life to be created And by my spirit alone, I will speak a word over death and bring life. I will speak a bone over uh, carcasses and there'll be sinews and there'll be flesh and there'll be tendons and there'll be molecular construction. Before the naked eye, there'll be a rattling and a creation of new spirit-empowered, God-exalting people. I'm going to do this. It's going to be a new covenant people. It's going to be like a great army. It's new life. It's new creation. It's new birth. It's not stapling apples onto a fig tree. It's transformation by the Spirit of God. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, have some of that. I've predicted, I've promised, and you've missed it. I'm a rabbi like no other. When I speak, life is given. When I speak, new birth happens. That's what being born again means. New birth is an action of God, which the very life and strength and the power of God by the Holy Spirit is implanted like a seed at the base of your heart so that the root of your heart is transformed. And from that root comes new affections for Jesus. Your tongue is under a new king. New motivations, new ambitions, New desires. Why? Because there's a new seed in your heart and it's bearing forth fruit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. That means there's no hopeless cases. That means there's no one who's too far gone because it's the work of Almighty God bringing new creation into the life of a dead person. And God alone can make a dead, per- a walking dead person live. It's Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. And Nicodemus, you need to understand this. It's about water and the spirit. But then Nicodemus, his life is a wonderful uh, microcosm, a picture, a tableau of what this looks like. The difference between a person who's born again and a person who's not yet born again is that the person who is born again sees the kingdom And sees the king. Sees the kingdom and sees the king. Look at Nicodemus. He's a wonderful example. In John chapter 3, he doesn't see the kingdom. He's just beginning to see the king. But by the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 19, he's a completely different person. He's been transformed by the power of God. When he comes, he comes in darkness, John chapter 3. When he comes in John chapter 19, he doesn't care who sees him. 
He's become a man of courage. He uses all his wealth and resources to buy spices at great personal risk to himself financially. He uh, goes into a part ownership deal of a place where Jesus' body can be laid. Think what was at stake for Nicodemus. He was successful. He was wealthy. He's part of the Sanhedrin. And yet here he is with Joseph of Arimathea saying, we'd love to have the body of Jesus. Come again. We'd love to have the body of Jesus and we want to take the bloody body of Jesus and we're going to wipe the blood clean. We're going to do our absolute uttermost with our first century medical experience to care for the broken body of King Jesus and prepare it for burial. They bring him down. They dress the body themselves, I'm sure. They care for him. They prepare him. They put spices on him. They wipe off all the blood and stuff and they put it in this tomb. What happened to Nicodemus? What brought him in his heart of hearts to a place where he went from coming in darkness and no one would see to doing everything in the middle of the noonday sun? What happened to him? So rather than uh, enjoying all this cultural capital, he put it all at risk for the sake of Jesus. What happened to him? So all his wealth and uh, seniority in the culture was at risk for King Jesus because he saw the king. He saw the kingdom and the importance of it and he saw the king. Here's what happens. It happened to Nicodemus and it can happen to you too. The change happens when you see the king. When you see the king for who he is. He was more courageous in chapter 19 than he was in chapter 3. I don't care who sees me. I want to bury my king. I want to love him. I want to care for him. No matter what it costs me, financial or otherwise. He'd been humbled deeply, culturally. He'd been humbled in terms of his pride. His male pride was gone. His class pride was gone. His cultural pride was gone because he wanted to care for the king because he'd seen his beauty. His whole identity had been uprooted and been replaced with a seed of the gospel in his heart. He's a member of a new kingdom. So what? Well, that means the king and knowing and loving the king is more important than his money. He didn't mind risking it. To Nicodemus, his safety was no longer as real as the king. That means he didn't understand how life was working, really, until he met the king. He didn't care to bank enough money for a rainy day with responsible financial planning. He'd rather risk it all for the king. You see the change? It goes way beyond stapling apples to a tree. This change only happens when God is at work in your life. It's new priorities, it's new affections, it's new ambitions. It's new courage that comes from being humbled under the mighty hand of God. How is that possible? It's only possible when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, regardless of their age or stage of life, is shown the king. You cannot do it by elbow grease. Verse 6, moral and spiritual elbow grease. You can't do it. Verse 6, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Unless you're born of the Spirit of God, you cannot see the kingdom. You won't see the king. And so Nicodemus asks his second question. Verse 9, well, how can this be? How can these things be? Point 1, why? Point 2, what does it look like? Point 3, well, how can you be born again? How can you be born again? That, that, that's where Jesus goes. Verse 5 to 8, the new birth is not something you can bring about. It's all by the gracious working of King Jesus. 
But responding to Nicodemus' second question is verses 10 to 15. There is something that you must do. It's on the screen. There's something you must do to be born again, and that's to believe. Three times, four times in this passage, it says about accepting the testimony. That's in verse 11. Verse 12, twice, believe, believe. Verse 15, when I'm lifted up, believe in me. Now, what does that mean? It's this strange picture from the bowels of the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21. It says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert or the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's chapter 3, verse 14. In Numbers 21, there's a very unique, that's a shorthand way of saying, strange story. God has rescued his people from under the heel of Pharaoh. They were in slavery in Egypt. And God brings them out through the Red Sea. He speaks his word to them at Mount Sinai. And he wants to dwell with his people. He's rescued them so that they might worship him. But they start grumbling and they start complaining. Wasn't it better when we were back in slavery? We had cucumbers back there. We had garlic. We had some other nice stuff. We want to go back. God, where are you? And they start to grumble and they start to complain against God and against God's leaders. They started to grumble and complain against God's provision and against his care. And so God, in Numbers 21, sent a plague of venomous snakes. And they start to bite the Israelites so that many of them were dying. Now, why would God do such a thing? Because God, listen carefully, God wanted to show them that there's something more deadly in their hearts than the venomous bites that were biting their bodies. And they knew their sin. God wanted to expose something deep in their hearts that needed to be dealt with. It wasn't just the venom that was in their bodies. It was their souls that had venom in it. God wanted to show them that they needed to deal with something deep in their hearts. They needed surgery. What's the poison in their hearts? It's called sin. It's called sin, which is a shorthand way of saying living your life as if you are the only one that matters. Living your life as if you're the center of existence. Living your life so you put yourself first and others always get second best. And God is saying through Numbers 21 that is unique, that is special, that is strange. There is something far more deadly than the snakes that needs dealing with, and it's your hearts. And if that's not dealt with, I can never dwell with you. And it was an act of remarkable grace. God speaks to Moses and says, Form a Nehushton, which is a funny name. Form a bronze serpent around a pole and put it up in the center of the camp. And this is what I want you to tell people. Anyone with their snake bites who are dying of thirst because they're in the wilderness and in the desert, anyone who looks at the snake, looks at my provision for their rescue, will live. All they need to do is look. Suppose Moses says something like this. Uh, anyone who can crawl on their hands and knees and touch it. Anyone who's strong enough to do some press-ups and then come and do it then you can be healed. Come and touch the serpent twice. Spin around and do it two more times, and then you can be healed. Moses doesn't say anything of that because that's not what God said. God says all you need to do is look. It just levels the playing field to say all you need to do is look. 
Because if it was down to crawling and touching and doing press-ups, the weaker would die and the stronger would survive. It takes no ability to look. It takes no strength, but it does take humility to see God's provision for our rescue and to believe. Everyone was on the same platform in the wilderness. Everyone was on the same level. All they had to do was look at God's provision. And that's what Jesus Christ means when he says believe, verse 12, twice. Verse 15, you do not have to uh, muster up enough courage. You don't have to do certain things, give certain amounts of money, be able to read or not, be able to serve or not. All you need to do is look. Jesus dying for the sins of the world is just like the bronze snake in the desert. Jesus Christ is God's provision for a sin-sick world with our thirst that will never be quenched. Just ask the woman in John chapter 4 in a few weeks' time. There's nothing you can do, but I've taken your curse upon myself, the snake bite of your sin. I carry everything on the cross, and all you need to do is look at God's provision of the one who came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who died for the sins of the world. I've taken all that you need to pay. All you need to do is look. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. All you need is nothing. That's all you need. And if you come with anything, you'll be excluded. Just look. Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist minister of a century or so ago, was converted after spending, he became a Christian, after spending a few weeks doing absolutely everything he could to gain God's favor. He confessed his sins every day. I'm so sorry for what I've done. He tried very hard to live a moral life, but it's just like apples on the, uh, on the fig tree. One day he walked into the wrong church because of the weather. He was with the wrong congregation. They were not his people. And even the preacher who was supposed to be preaching was delayed. And so the organ guy got up, the shoemaker, the tailor, thin-looking man, he records later in life. Someone who'd hardly ever spoken a word before got up into the pulpit and opened up the Bible. I've got to say something. Isaiah 45 was his passage. It says this, Look to me and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. And suddenly Spurgeon realized what he'd been doing. He hadn't looked. He'd been working really hard. But he hadn't looked at the means that God gives for salvation, which is Jesus. He'd been working, he'd been crawling, he'd been dragging himself over, but he wasn't called to do that. He was called to believe God's promise, and he was called to look. And suddenly, he realized that anybody can look. And so he looked at Jesus himself, and he became a Christian, and God used him to change so much of his world. 